Would you turn again, please, to 1 John chapter 5 and verses 18 to 21. 1 John 5 verses 18 to 21. Now, I usually begin with saying what I'm going to preach about and why it's worth listening to. That's, uh, I don't know if you realise, that's basically my pattern, what I'm going to say and why it's worth listening to. But this evening, I'm just going to say, this is the Word of God. This is John finishing his wonderful letter. And so let's get straight into it and find out what it's about by getting into it. John is sometimes called the Apostle of Love. And while Jesus loved all of his disciples, it is John that is described as the one that Jesus particularly loved. And Jesus had made him loving. He really was the apostle of love. And so this letter is full of reference to love. We love because he first loved us is just one example of many. It's a letter full of love. And so he ends, verse 21, dear children, Dear children, he loves these Christians he's writing to as if they were his dear little children. But because he loves them, he also warns. Because he loves, he doesn't shy away from saying things that, well, might have a little edge to them. And being straight with them about warning, about dangers that they face. And so he ends, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Here are his final words to these Christians he loves as his dear children. Keep yourselves from idols. Now, if you've been here as we've gone through uh, 1 John over the months, you will know it's a letter that repeats itself a lot. The same topics keep coming up again and again in uh, different forms. And so the question we face as we get to verse 21 is, why does he end like this? What idols have come up in the letter? John is not a man to bring in a completely new subject. He's a man to keep repeating the same subject. So what idols come up in this letter that he's warning them about? Now, this evening I am going to ask questions that I'm hoping that you will answer. And for the sake of those at home, I must try to remember to say what you've said so people at home get to hear. But um, there's a question for you, but I must admit it's a bit of a tricky one. In fact, it's a bit of a trick one. What idols have come up in this letter? What have we heard about the people he's writing to being in danger of idolatry? Well, I won't pause for long to give you a chance to answer because I think the answer is none. None. If you're talking about statues and images people bow down to and the normal way we think of idols, it just hasn't been a subject in this letter. So why does this apostle, who is very keen on repeating himself, and he set at the beginning all his subjects and then the rest has been repetition in different ways, end with, keep yourselves from idols? Well, there haven't been any idols in this letter. But... There has been this. All the way through the letter, he's been guarding Christians against false teachers. People who've come into the church, well, they'd left by now, but there had been people around who'd really unsettled the Christians. 
by teaching wrong things about God, by teaching a wrong idea of who Jesus is. That's been all the way through the letter. And so those are the idols he's warning against here. Not some new subject that just hits us out of the blue, but the same subject that's been there right from chapter 1. There are these people with a wrong idea of God and Jesus. Keep yourselves from those idols. It it might help us uh, to see this if we ever think about what an idol is. So, can someone give us... There's there's multiple answers really to this, but how would you describe what an idol is? Have a think and then let's hear from someone. What is an idol? Any ideas? Okay, something in place of God. So it's a replacement for God. Yes. Margaret? Okay, so it's in place of God by being a bigger place than him. So you might still have some sort of belief in God, but he's been obscured by something. Yes. What else could we say? Yes, a misrepresentation of God. By being, let's think about it in the most basic way, it's an image of God, isn't it? The most basic sort of idea of an idol is there's an image of God. Well, let's take some of those and have a think. You... An idol is an image of God that's sometimes a metal image that people bow to, but it's sometimes a mental image. And here it's a mental image of God, the wrong idea. Uh, Now, I said wrong idea, it's a misrepresentation of God. The The people troubling this church misrepresented God. They said the physical Jesus and the spiritual Christ were two different people. Because God's a spiritual being who couldn't have anything to do with this nasty, physical, bad, evil world misrepresented who Jesus is. And bigger in our mind than God, that the idol also distances us from God. I think that's true often of idols. Think of, think of it like this. Roman Catholicism idolises Mary. But does the Roman Catholic believe that Mary is God? No. But the Roman Catholic prays to and idolises Mary as a sort of intermediary coming between them and God. God is so distant and so other, Mary's somehow closer. I'll pray to Mary and Mary can represent me to God. An idol comes between a person and God, makes God more distant. That's true across human religion, that, that you have these images that come between you and the shadowy God behind And the false teachers, they put God at a distance. As some spiritual being quite distant from this physical world and us physical beings. And so John ends with this warning, keep yourselves from idols, these wrong mental images of God that were around at his time. Now, they were around at his time, but to us it might sound really odd. They said Jesus and Christ were two different people. How odd. I've never heard anyone say that. So, is this still relevant today? Well, it doesn't take too much thought, does it, to say it's relevant today. We have more access to religious teaching than ever before. Never has there been a time with so many Christian books available, especially if you speak English. 
Put any question about God in, or any Bible reference into a search engine and straight away you'll have thousands of resources at your fingertips. And that's something to be thankful for. There's so much available. But there's an awful lot of danger comes along with it. There's an awful lot of wrong teaching, a lot of false mental images of God. We need to be told, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. But then that raises the question, how? How? Notice it does say, keep yourselves from idols. It's something we're to do. How do you do it? Well, let's think of an example like this. A girl at school has a whisper bar in her lunchbox. And another child says, give up that whisper bar and I'll give you this rich tea biscuit. Now, how do we get her not to give up her whisper bar? Well, you could tell her how worthless, dry, and just like eating cardboard a rich tea biscuit is, couldn't you? (laughs) Really, why on earth would you buy a rich tea biscuit? Just bits of cardboard. You could tell her that, and hopefully that would put her off. But wouldn't it be better if she knows how good a whisper bar is? If she knows how good a whisper bar is, that's the better way to get her not to give it up. Well, keeping ourselves from idols is partly knowing how useless that idol is. But the better way is knowing how good the real Jesus is. And so verses 18 to 20 end John's letter with some of the themes of 1 John. What I hope we're going to find out now is that some of the themes of 1 John come up in these verses. And what John is doing here is he's he's giving some little reminders. The mental images of God are useless. Don't go after them. But the emphasis is more on, we've got the whisper bar. We've got the thing worth keeping hold of. So don't swap it for those idols. Okay, that was all a long introduction. Uh, When I was a child, the minister would preach for about 50 minutes, and then he would say, and that was by way of introduction. And you'd wonder how long you'd be there for. Well, that, that wasn't 50 minutes, but that was all by way of introduction so far. What I want us to do is now go through verses 18 to 20. And it will be a bit Bible study-like as we go through these verses. And I want you to keep in mind as we do it, it's, it's to help us keep ourselves from idols. It's to persuade us we've got the whisper bar and those idols are the rich tea biscuits. Don't swap. So, let's go through these verses 18 to 20. And we'll just take it verse by verse. First of all, verse 18 What themes from John's letter come up in this verse? Can you spot, I'll give you a few seconds to remind yourself of verse 18, what themes from 1 John can you spot coming up here? And then we'll hear what people think. There are a few answers, by the way. Did you say... uh, uh, Our victory over sin. Thank you, Brian. I was just going to give people a few more seconds to read and think, but we've got one answer already. Thank you. Okay, any other themes, things you notice have come up already in this letter? We've had sin and our our safety from it and our victory over it. 
New birth is is another theme that has come up already. And there are a couple of others that might not be so obvious. There's a phrase that keeps coming up in 1 John. Anyone else spot a phrase that keeps coming up? Well, yeah, that's the one that Brian's been saying about victory over sin. A phrase that comes up at the beginning of verse 18 and verse 19 and verse 20, there I've made it really obvious, haven't I? We know, we know. And there's one other that I'll come to in a minute. Let's, let's take some of these. We know is this repeated phrase in, in 1 John. So, for example, chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brothers. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And repeatedly, John says, we know. He's doing it because the false teachers claim they've got a special secret knowledge. But John is saying, look, I'm an apostle. And I actually knew Jesus. And so I can be definite about what we know. We'll come back to that theme later because it comes up in each verse. Another theme, as someone said, was being born of God. There we have it, verse 18. We know that anyone born of God. This, this has been holding up everything that John has been saying about the Christian life. Undergirding it is new birth. So he tells us about love. I've already said it's a a letter full of love. But where does this love come from? Well, it comes from from God originally, but how does it get into us? Chapter 4, verse 7. Everyone who loves has been born of God. It comes from the new birth. He tells us about faith in Christ. There's such a lot in this letter about Trust in Christ. Where does that faith come from? Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. It comes from the new birth, that work of God in us. You might remember this phrase, born of God, means fathered by God. It's a word that could be used for a woman giving birth or for a father doing his begetting, to use the old-fashioned term. His part in the creating a child. Obviously, as God is a father, that's what's going on here. It's God giving the life, starting the Christian life, giving the Christian his or her DNA, we could say, the character. Right from the start, everything flows from this new birth. But we've got born of God referred to twice in verse 18. Have a look at verse 18 again. We've got anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Then we have the one who was born of God keeps him safe. Who do you think this one born of God was? Is. Who's the one born of God? It is Christ. That's right. It is Christ. But what is interesting here is that Christ is described in a way almost identical to the Christian. I hope you can take it from me that it it looks even more identical in the Greek that John was writing in. The Christian is anyone born of God and Christ is the one who was born of God. Written identically to remind us of another theme of John's letter. Here's another theme that he's reminding us of which is the closeness of Christ and the Christian described almost identically to remind us our lives are intertwined with his, one with his, dependent on him. 
He's the eternal Son of God, and through him we're adopted sons of God. Whether you're male or female, you're an adopted son of God. In other words, full rights of inheritance. And that makes him, I hope it isn't too irreverent to say, our big brother. That makes him our big brother. Now, I don't know how many of you have got big brothers, and what your big brother was like if you had one. Some big brothers treat their little brothers as annoying nuisances. Some big brothers stick up for little brother. And it's good in the playground when the bully comes along to have a big brother to keep you safe and stick up for you. And that's the sort of big brother we've got. That's what's going on here in verse 18. The one who was born of God keeps us safe and the evil one cannot harm us. Do you notice the two protections against sin we've got here in this verse? Two protections against sin? There's God's DNA in us, a character that will react against sin because God's fathered us. Oh yes, we fall for sin, sadly. And sometimes it looks attractive to us and we go for it. But if we've got God's character in us, it will sicken us and we will turn from it. And so John can say, the one who was born of God does not continue in sin. We've got protection on the inside. But there's also protection on the outside. Because there's an enemy on the outside, Satan tempts us. And Satan wants to take us down. And he throws at us troubles with the hope that they'll make us bitter and make us turn from Christ. But we've got a big brother who won't allow that. And he turns instead those troubles into ways to grow patience and love. And to make us more like him. What gifts we've got here. That's what John is doing here. He's saying, remember, this is nothing new. I've been telling you this in in the letter. What gifts you've got. Keep hold of them. That's the way to keep yourselves from idols. But what's the warning note here? In these verses, the emphasis is usually on the positive, but there is also usually a little warning note. What's the warning note? The way to see it is, how does verse 18 link to what the false teachers were like? It may help you to look back at chapter 1, verse 6. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 6, John drops into his letter every so often things that are having a dig at the false teachers because of what they were like. Any idea, if you look at chapter 1, verse 6... What were these false teachers like? And John here is warning about them. Maybe it would help if I read chapter 1, verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. What would you guess the false teachers are doing? They're claiming they're these great people who know God, but they're continuing carelessly in sin. Sin's no big deal, sin's just something in our physical bodies and of course we're spiritual beings and the physical doesn't matter sort of thing. They claimed to be Christians but they carried on carelessly in sin. And John is saying here, whatever their claims, however impressive they may be, however good their teaching might sound to you, they are not born of God. And you can tell that because they're carrying on in sin. And they haven't got God's character. God's attitude to sin. It's uh, just about bird nesting season, isn't it? 
And in our garden, there are blue tits nesting in the box. And, uh, well, I haven't noticed them yet, but we usually get blackbirds in the hedges and less desirably wood pigeons in one of the trees. Now, what will the blue tits produce when the eggs hatch? Blue tits. And what will the blackbirds produce when the eggs hatch? Blackbirds. <laughs> it's, you, you don't doubt that for a moment, do you? If in the blackbird's nest the egg hatches open and it's a cuckoo, you know that the blackbird didn't father it. You have no doubt the blackbird did not father that cuckoo. It's in the nest, but it's not from the father. And these false teachers, they were in the nest, in the church, at least they had been, but they were not from the father. Chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. And you can tell that because they don't have the father's attitude to sin. They don't have the father's revulsion at sin. And we're being warned, however impressive someone is, however good a teacher they sound, however clever they are, if they continue in sin, if they downplay the importance of sin, if they turn the gospel into an excuse for sin, they weren't fathered by God. Beware. Keep yourselves from their idols. Let's move on to verse 19. Verse 19. What themes from 1 John come up here? I reckon there are two. There might be more, but there's two I've thought of. What themes from 1 John come up in verse 19? Go on, Brian. The world. world. Yes, the world. And what's the world like? It's under the control of the evil one. Right, we'll come to that one. I want to deal with that one secondly. And the first one is... Children of God. Thank you. Thanks. Sorry, people at home, when I, I'm forgetting sometimes to repeat what people have said. We've been told the world and the children of God are two themes in, in 1 John. Being children of God. Now, to be fair, the word children isn't in this verse in the Greek. It just says, we know that we are of God. But this is typical NIV. It's got the meaning right. It does mean children of God. And John loved this. John reveled in this that we're children of God. I reckon John's most emotional, most expressive moment in the letter is chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Literally, of what country is this love? I've never come across this sort of love around here. That we should be called children of God. How out of this world to be children of God. When I was a teenager, starting to seek God and to be concerned by the gospel I heard, the warnings, and had I taken hold of the good news, I thought how wonderful it would be if only I knew I was forgiven and safe from hell. If if I could just have that, I would be happy. If I could just know I'm forgiven and safe from hell. And you know what happened? God gave me that and so much more. So much more. To be a child of God. To have him as father caring for me. To be adopted permanently into his family, not just fostered for a while. And then soon after those teenage years, my dad died. And to have 
a never-dying father caring for me. That took on, that had an extra element to it as well. If there's anyone listening who's not a Christian, you are missing out on something precious. But you don't need to, because it's offered to you to believe and take, to ask and receive. Fellow Christians, don't let go of what you've got. The idols won't be as good, and there's no idol can be your father and care for you and discipline you and provide for you and take you into his home forever. Now, that other theme in verse, uh, what verse are we on? 19. Brian has said the world. I want to put it a little different way. We've got here, we've got here children of God and we've got the world. We've got two groups of people. And we've got here, maybe not so much a theme that you get across John, but a way of thinking. And it's this, John thinks in a very binary way. Binary thinking. What does binary mean? It means he sees there being just two options. And everything falls into two options. Or everyone fits into two categories. Now, binary thinking isn't very popular today. It's seen as rather harsh. Yeah, we don't want to say everything's black and white. No, most things are shades of grey. Yeah, we don't like being too black and white about things. No, just shades of grey and a bit sort of murky in the middle. That sounds nicer, doesn't it? Maybe. But John's way of thinking is very binary. Across the letter we've had, you're either in the light or you're in the darkness. You're either a person of love or a person of hate. You either follow the truth or you're a liar. He actually says very bluntly, or you're a liar. Who did John get this binary way of thinking from? From Jesus. I wonder if you can think of examples of Jesus being like that. You're a sheep or a goat. You're on my right hand or my left hand. You're a wise builder or a foolish builder, and on we could go. Binary way of thinking. Yeah, not popular today, but it is biblical. The Bible sees us all in two categories. So in this verse, the warning is more stark and more clear. We're not to say, oh, it's a broad church practicing good disagreement and nothing's black and white. No. John says it is. Uh, now there are things we, there are things we need to agree to disagree about. <laughs> yeah, otherwise we're, you, you'll get every church pulling itself apart. But not what God is like and who Jesus is, and what the gospel is, and the need to repent of sin, and the authority of the Bible. Oh no, we can't just agree to disagree about them. The Bible doesn't say, well those people are just on, we're all on a different journey, with a different understanding of the truth, we're just on different stages of this journey. It says, we are the children of God, and the only other option is being under the control of the evil one. It's drastic, isn't it? It's drastic. But the purpose here is to warn, be on your guard. There are false teachers. Keep yourselves from idols. But surely it should also prompt this, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it prompt the compassion of Jesus? The whole world is under the control of the evil one. What terrible news. How to be pitied. How miserable, how dangerous to be under the control of the evil one. Shouldn't this prompt the compassion of Jesus? Let's get to them the only news and the only person who can free them. John's saying to us, we've got something to keep hold of. And those other 
those idols being offered. No, no, they're not worth having. Let's see it once more in verse 20. Verse 20. What themes from 1 John do we get from verse 20? The Son of God has come. Thank you, John. The Son of God has come. This is how the letter began. The letter began, do you remember back in chapter 1, verse 1? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's come. He's come. And that's the basis for everything in the letter. Because the gospel depends on this. The Son of God, he's come. And that results in, in another theme that we've seen already. Because the Son of God has come, John knows And we can know. Verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come. What do we know? Can you spot two things we know in verse 20? Two things we know according to verse 20. It might be wrong to say things. There's the first one we've just been talking about. We know that the Son of God has come. And then there is, as a result, we know him who is true. Yeah, Two things. So the first is the Son of God has come. It's an event in history. It's something that happened 2,000 years ago. And it was seen by eyewitnesses and then reliably recorded and passed down to us. And that's an emphasis of John's Gospel. I saw him, we've just read. I touched him. I heard him. And now I'm telling you all about it. So you can be sure the Son of God has come. It's historical. It's factual. It's objective. But then as a result, we can have this different sort of knowledge. Because he's come... Verse 20, we may know him who is true, meaning God. He came so we could know God. And interestingly, there's a different word for know here. It's the word used in the Bible for knowing someone. It's about more than knowledge, it's about relationship. It is, very significantly, a word used like this. Adam knew his wife Eve and then, as a result, she became pregnant. It's that sort of word. In other words, verse 20 is saying something like this. We know the historical fact the Son of God has come so that we can know from experience the God who's true. We can really know him. Do you see, we've had this before in 1 John. Christianity is about historical facts. You can look at and see the evidence and is about experience now, both of them. Now, this relationship of knowing God is so close, it's also called what in verse 20? It's knowing God, but it's also what? Look for some little words. Being in him, that's right. It's so close, it's described as being in him. In a little while, you'll leave this building and you'll go home. And you'll get closer and closer and closer to home until eventually you're in your home. That's the closest, isn't it, you can be in it. And it's saying this is such a close relationship. It's described as being in God. There's there's quite a lot in the Bible about being in God. There are different pictures to help us understand what it means to be in God. He's the rock of refuge we're in. What's that picturing? Safety, security. He's the hen whose wings we're in. 
What's that picturing? Well, again, it's safety, but there's more of an emphasis on comfort and love. Uh, it, there's that in, sort of husband and wife sort of in. In other words, knowing each other and knowing each other's desires and listening to each other and speaking to each other. In other words, a living relationship. Now, by the way, have you noticed the progression in these verses? It went from God fathering us, verse 18, to being children of God, an ongoing experience, verse 19, to knowing God. The newborn baby doesn't, well, it has a relationship with God, but there's also a growing to know God. And then it is, this knowing God is so close, we're in him. Wonderful progression. And notice it all depends on Jesus. Verse 20 And we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. Even isn't really the most helpful translation. It's saying this is how we're in him. How are we in the father? By being in the son. Where did John get this from? Oh, again, he got it from his master. I think he was there when his master was praying. John chapter 17. And he prayed to his father and he said, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. John overheard Jesus praying to his father about this amazing relationship. The father and the son are in each other. And so if we're in Christ, we're in God and we're safe and we're loved and it's a living relationship. This relationship of the father and son, we're getting drawn into it. We get a little taster now but there's much more to come when he appears and we see him as he is. That's a quote of 1 John 3. And then that will be eternal life. And that will be knowing the true God. And that brings us to the last sentence of verse 20. Do you see it there? He is the true God and eternal life. Who is the true God and eternal life? Who's it talking about? Jesus? Maybe. Or maybe God the Father. And I have to admit, it's very difficult to tell. Because the way the grammar of the verse is, you could take it either way. And our theology allows us to take it either way. Because I hope you have no doubt that John believed that Jesus was God. He tells us that at the beginning of his Gospel as well as in other places. It can be taken either way. So when you get that knock on your door, and it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, this isn't the verse to be going to, to prove to them that Jesus is God, because it can be taken either way. You've got plenty of other better verses. But I also think we can be fairly relaxed about which way you take it, because I suspect that John wasn't too worried about which way you take it, because he'd heard from Jesus... Jesus say, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And we are one. So maybe he's talking about Jesus, maybe he's talking about the Father, or maybe he isn't too worried, because he knows they are one, and they are both the eternal life and the true God. No idol can compare with this God, beyond our imagination and our understanding. So remember the schoolgirl with the whisper bar in the lunchbox and someone trying to persuade her to have this rich tea biscuit instead? It helps to know the rich tea biscuit is like a piece of dry cardboard, but it's better to know a whisper bar is really good. By the way, I haven't been sponsored by Cadbury's. 
But John's letter has warned us. There have been repeated warnings because we do need discernment and it's worth knowing there are dangers out there and they're sometimes very subtle. But far more, John's letter has shown us there's a saviour who brings real good news and he hasn't shouted it from a distance, he's come into this world and he's come physically in a body and he's come and he's physically died and given himself so we can know him and be in him forever and there is no idol can compare with him. So, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray for God's help to do that. Father, please give us discernment. There is a lot of false teaching around and it can be very subtle. And anything that uh, distorts the truth or leads us from the Lord Jesus is very dangerous. So please give us discernment and wisdom and care. But more importantly, please, may we see more of the Lord Jesus and understand more who he is And be amazed more at what we have in him. How amazing to be fathered by you and be children of you and to know you and to be in you and one day to be taken to be with you forever. The God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit in perfect love. Father, we thank you. We pray we'd we'd value and cling on carefully to what we've got and keep ourselves from idols. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's end with some words from Numbers chapter 6 that um, we often say amen at the end of these, but they're not actually a prayer. They are a blessing from God to his people. So, hear God's blessing before we depart. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace.